Okay. Today, my guest is Professor Ellen Byrne. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about Ellen as a person. Professor Byrne is a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally, is a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Ellen Byrne is a senior professor at the Goa Institute in, of Management in India. His research interests are global leadership assessment and development, intercultural management, managing in global organizations, international human resource management, and Japanese business and management. He has written over 60 journal articles, eight books, 37 book chapters, three cases, 20 book reviews, technical reports, and business periodicals. Ellen received the 2015 Emerald Literati Award for his scholarly contributions. 2013 Outstanding Leadership uh, leadership, book on, uh, leadership Book Award, and several Best Paper or Best Symposium Awards at AIB, Global Leadership Advancement Center, and AOM. His Bridging Culture Software also received the gold medal in the International Interactive Math Media Competition. He has served as a track chair, conference chair, program chair, uh, and chair of the careers division at AOM and Association of Japanese Business Studies annual meetings. So thank you, Ellen, for making time for us. Thank you for having me. Uh, perfect. First question, what did you want to become when you were a child? <clears throat> you know, that was, uh, I, I was reflecting on that. I, I had uh, wanted to become an astronaut uh, when I was very young, but uh, of course that, that idea was ill-formed and mostly a reflection of the of the of the NASA space program. Uh, as I as I got older, I uh, I knew that I was fascinated by ideas and words, and I thought I might uh, move in the direction of becoming a lawyer. But um, but ultimately, I found I, I found an, a scholarly life and an interest in ideas and exploring them to be far more rewarding. And where did you grow up? Pardon where me. Did you, where did you grow up? I grew up in uh, Stockton, California, uh, a, a very multicultural town. It's located in the Central Valley of California, a uh, very fertile farmland area, close uh, about an hour from San Francisco. And in my community growing up, there were at least 60 identifiable ethnic communities. Um, on my on my street alone, which I would characterize as a typical middle class neighborhood, um, my my best friends were uh, Italian and uh, Mexican and German, and so early on, uh, and uh, and I left out my uh, my who someone who became my closest friend who was Japanese American. Um, so from from an early, very early age, I was I was accustomed to understanding that people came from very different backgrounds, had very different uh, perspectives on life. I, I can remember uh, going with my Italian friend out in the countryside, uh, a family gathering with his uh, with his extended family, and uh, and getting a real appreciation that at at an age that. Uh, I, I couldn't appreciate it at the time, but um, a real appreciation for Italian cooking and for kind of the Italian family. Uh, my Japanese friend, I, uh, I, I, I learned that um, 
you know, the, the taking off shoes in the house and putting on slippers and, uh, and, and being very, I would say, very respectful to parents and very orderly in one one's life um, were were pretty different from my uh, from my growing up. Not that I was sloppy or disrespectful to my parents, but uh, it introduced me to a different standard. And so I was always interested in in those kind of differences and and enjoyed learning about, I would say, the background of people. Uh, kind of where they were coming from and, uh, you know, how they've been shaped. Perfect. So uh, what was the journey like uh, from uh, that early years to, to academia? How did you get to academia? So I, um, I <clears throat> without going into too much detail, I, I graduated from college and then a series of uh, of, of unfortunate events and bad advice put me in an, in a, in an interesting place. Uh, the unfortunate event was I had applied to a number of schools, but also to the Coast Guard Academy. Hmm. And I, which was really my first hope. My grandfather had been in the Coast Guard and I hoped to, uh, to follow, uh, but I did not make the cut. I had bad eyesight and uh, that led to a, a, I'll say, a downgrading of my application. I wound up on a waiting list instead of uh, instead of being admitted. My backup schools, I thought, were in good order, and then discovered um, that I'd received bad advice from a high school counselor, and the test scores that had been submitted were um, were not what those schools wanted. And so there I was, uh, just missing my my target school and stuck. And I ended up going to a community college, and that really turned out for for two years. And that that actually turned out to be an extraordinary education. I learned from some some phenomenal professors, um, in in studying general subjects, and and got a chance to uh, to to learn things in a way different. One of my best friends had, had wound up at UC Berkeley and we both took a philosophy course and it turned out we were using the same textbook. And when we got together during the Christmas break, I discovered that I knew a lot more than he did. He had sat in a lecture hall with 400 other students listening to a professor you know, lecture and that way. I had been in a small class of 20 students with a professor who was trained at one of the best universities in the country for philosophy, that would be the University of Southern California. And he was teaching at a, at a community college because he had come to academia late in life. And so the typical doors that would be open to a newly minted PhD weren't open to him. Hmm. And, uh, and so through that, through that series of events and, and teachers, I really developed a, a great interest. Um, at one point, I stepped away from school for two years to serve a, a mission for my, uh, my church, um, wholly voluntary. And, and we, don't have a, we don't have a choice when we, we make that decision. We go where we're sent. I was sent to Japan, and that two years in Japan completely opened my eyes to uh, to to a different world. Um, I felt completely at home in Japan, 
Um, mm. At the same time, it was so foreign to anything I had known. And I really puzzled over that for quite a few years. How could I feel so comfortable in a place that seemed so foreign? And that then led to uh, an opportunity to, uh, to um, do my graduate work in Japan. I returned to the US, um, was influenced by a, a history professor who, unbeknownst to me, kind of charted my course for me. He really thought I should go an academic route, line things up. And when I graduated from uh, with my undergraduate degree, he had he had made it uh, he had put me in a position to pursue a, a master's degree in Japan. And so off I went. And uh, and then that naturally led to an academic career over time. Um, at one point, um, after I had my degree and had been working in Japan for several years, we made a decision, my wife and I, to move back to the States. I applied for a job with the State Department and received a job offer. I applied for a job with, a, with an electronics trading company and had a job offer. And on the advice of, a, uh, of someone I met along the way, Jim Clausen at the University of Virginia, I uh, had a extraordinary conversation with him one evening while I was traveling. And um, I thought, well, I might as well, as long as I'm pursuing these other opportunities, I might as well consider pursuing an academic career as well. That's kind of had been in the back of my mind. And, um, and I was accepted to the PhD program at the University of Oregon. And so there I sat with three different paths in front of me. Hmm. And I thought, I can always go into the private sector. I can always go work for the government. Um, but I don't know that I'll have many opportunities to pursue an academic career. And I, I haven't looked back. Uh, it was uh, unquestionably the right path for me. Fascinating. Thank you. So uh, <clears throat> something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting about you. <clears throat> Um, I, I don't know, my, 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 my avatar name on many, uh, many social platforms is Mr. Generic. I, I'm not sure that there's anything <laughs> particularly interesting about me. Um, I, I would say that I, I, I enjoy the outdoors. Um, I used to hike and, and do a lot of, and, and do some do camping a lot, and then uh, when as I got older and my knees went out, I I switched to kayaking. And uh, if if I if there's water nearby, I'm I'm inclined to inclined to find a boat and uh, and go that direction. So I'll say that about me. Um, beyond that, this... I I'm I'm curious about people. I I enjoy going different places and and learning about people. And how did you uh, end up in India? Oh, uh, that's another another long story. I have a friend who's convinced I should write a book, uh, you know, <laughs> an autobiography. But I just, uh, I've, I've got other things I want to do before I before I spend time talking about myself. Um, I had made it. I had. I was in a chaired position at Northeastern University. And I felt like I had accomplished the things I had wanted to accomplish there. And I um, decided I would take on a new challenge and also move back to the West Coast. 
And so I accepted a position in administration as vice president of international affairs at a small liberal arts college. And um, when I did that, it was right when COVID struck. And I had gone out on a contract, um, gave up tenure and had gone out on a contract, which I thought would be sufficient. And when COVID struck, the school decided to back away from all of the international initiatives they had going on. Mm -hmm. And um, they, they, they elected to buy out my contract. Um, so I was in a somewhat comfortable position. Uh, I, 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 had an income, I had an income, but, but, uh, but no, no work. And uh, because we had lived, my, my wife and family, we had lived overseas in Japan for about five years early, early in my career, um, I thought I could use another challenge. I should go, I, I should use this opportunity where, while I'm relatively free to, uh, to seek new learning opportunities, to see if I, I actually do understand anything about how to work with, with people who are different. And so I looked around and uh, Goa had, uh, had some interesting things going. Uh, again, this was in the midst of the, the pandemic, mm -hmm. um, but they were willing to, um, to, to experiment with me. And I thought uh, I'm willing to, to come to India. If, if you're looking for diversity, this is a, this is a good location to find it. Um, there's a there's a saying that whatever true thing you can say about India, the opposite is also true, which means there's a, there's unending opportunities to encounter things you uh, you know you 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 can't easily anticipate and and to make sense of them, and it it has been an adventure. Um, Perfect. So uh, uh, I normally ask about the second path. Uh, if you can do it all over again, uh, what would be the second best uh, career path for you? What would you yeah, do? That's an, it's an interesting question because I had a uh, I had a possible career in front of me when I graduated from uh, with my undergraduate degree. I um, in order to uh, in order to take care of myself and to kind of pay my own way through college, I had um, I had started working in in restaurants, uh, working my way up from a busboy to um, to a, a prep chef, a kind of understudying with with people. And at the time, I was finishing up the, the last year and a half of my um, my studies. It, I was at Fresno State University. I had um, come on board to a restaurant and um, through a series of, of departures and, and, and turnover, I wound up in the, in the position of head chef for that, uh, for that particular restaurant. And uh, I could easily, I, I, I loved to cook. I loved spending time in the kitchen. I loved doing things with, with a, with a restaurant group, it's it's an interest. Restaurants, big restaurants, are an interesting organization, um, mm. and um, with with a high level of interpersonal interaction. And I I could see myself having, you know, having achieved that position of 
you know, of staying with that. I've often thought, uh, you know, if if I if I can't teach, I can always work in a, I can always work in a kitchen. I know my way around a kitchen. Uh, I I haven't I I haven't had that opportunity, although I do enjoy cooking for large groups on occasion. Um, After you retire, or if you retire, would you open up a restaurant? I, you know, for many years, I thought about opening a, a, a small restaurant. I'm, I'm fascinated by sandwiches and the <laughs> wide variety of sandwiches. You, you can't travel around the world like, like I have without encountering kind of every variety of, of sandwich. And when I say sandwich, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm thinking very, um, <clears throat> very broadly of anything, you know, anything on a piece of bread. And I, I, I define bread very broadly, you know, <laughs> any, anything that's, you know, so that could be a flat bread, you know, it could, it could be pita, it could be, you know, sourdough is mm -hmm. my favorite bread of choice, but, and, and then the things you do on that, whether you do it open face, like you find in Scandinavia, whether you, you know, whether you make whether you pile meat high or you know all all of the different things are so many different different ways you can you can go with a sandwich, and I thought that uh, I could have a shop small enough, but uh, have enough variety to do that. Uh, mm -hmm. I at, at this point I don't see myself uh, that that sounds like too much work. Would I go work in somebody else's sandwich shop if they were making gourmet sandwiches with with wide variety? I you might find me in the kitchen there. <laughs> yes. Regrets. Have you got any regrets? <laughs> I, um, <clears throat> pardon me. I there was a little Do you have any regrets. Uh, is there one thing you wish you would have done or done differently? <clears throat> yeah, I've been I've been very fortunate in my career to be at at some fine schools, work with some fine colleagues, and on occasion I've been approached to um, <clears throat> you know to see if I was willing to move to another institution. And my responses had always been, um, "I'm I'm happy where I'm at, but I'm willing to listen." Um, I, I like an adventure. At, at one point in my career, I just accepted a chaired position at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. And I was, a, I, literally, I, I was only two months into the job and, you know, I just moved the family across country. And an inquiry came from, um, from, from a, a, a business school in um, one of the European business schools that had opened a branch campus in, in Singapore. And, the, and, and that sounded exciting. And, and it was a one time I did not say, I'm happy where I'm at, but I'm willing to listen. I just said, oh, I just moved, you know, not, not now. And I've always regretted not at least listening to what, what, uh, what that opportunity may have looked like. Hmm. Uh, I don't know that I would have taken it. We had just, you know, moving as a moving as a significant effort, and uh, and takes a lot of uh, takes a lot of work. And I don't know that I would have been up for another move. But I regret not at least exploring the the option. Hmm. So it, it's not a big regret. And in, in the in the grand scheme of things in my career, it's not something I. Uh, 
I, I worry over. But it's the one time when I didn't at least listen to uh, what might be possible. Yeah, but it would make a huge difference. You know, living in Singapore versus living in India, then the trajectories are different from Singapore versus India. It's a huge, uh, huge decision note, right? Uh, yeah. What are you most proud of? Um, I, 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 I work hard not to, uh, not to nurture pride. Mm -hmm. And so that, that's a question I, I struggle with because I, my, I would say I'm, I'm not proud of anything, but I'm pleased with many things. And, and mm -hmm. so if I could if rephrase that to what am I most pleased about? Um, I think I would say it, um, it has been my ability to make contributions both in my research and also institutionally to, um, to help people work more effectively with one another. Uh, in my research, uh, if there's a theme that you can find in my research, it's all about how do people who are different from one another work together effectively. Over the last 20, 20 years or so, I've been focused on global leadership, but I really see that as the challenge of how do you lead people who are different and, and how do you do that effectively. Um, in building institutions and in setting up programs and designing curriculum and the like, uh, my focus again has been the same thing. It, um, it, if I can wax a bit more philosophical, there is a lot of pain in the world and there's a lot of conflict and so much of it uh, from where I sit seems needless, seems, uh, seems disappointing that it would exist and so my interest has been trying to understand how do we help, how do we help managers? How do we help employees? How do we help leaders? How do we help people in our community work okay. across those differences? Okay. Uh, I see. So let's just talk about research a bit. How do you explain your research and importance of your research? Why you do what you do? <clears throat> to uh, laymen, to people who don't read uh, scholarly journals, That is that is interesting. If I can just preface my my response with this: um, When I was early in my career, I was driving cross country and I stopped in to visit my one of my brothers. I have, I have uh, six siblings, and and he asked me what uh, what I was doing, and I was I, I'd only been a professor for a couple of years, and I started to give a long winded answer, and he looked at me and he said, "Alan, you don't understand the three second rule." If you can't tell people what you do in three seconds, what you do is unimportant. And for the rest of that trip, which had four or five weeks left on it, I, I would be driving driving across country and reflecting on, well, how do I how do I sum that up? You know, how do I say in three seconds? Or is the work I'm doing really not very important? And I would say, um, as I indicated earlier. I try to understand how to help people who are different work effectively with one another. 
I don't know if that quite hits the three second mark. <laughs> it does. I, I was counting that. About as simple as I can get. If I, if I were sitting in a pub somewhere and somebody said, you know, what do you do, Mr. Academic? Uh, I'd say, well, I try to help people figure out how to get along with one another. You know, <laughs> I, a particular venue of, of organizations and, you know, in a context of, of international, but I think the things I'm working on um, make just as much sense if we're talking about how do we get, you know, how do we get marketers and uh, and engineers to to work effectively with one another. Uh, those are differences that uh, that often get in the way of, uh, you know, of, of smooth relationships as well. True, true. Things that we have omitted in research in IB, things that we have underutilized, underdeveloped, understudied, overlooked. <clears throat> Now, I just um, I, I just gave a keynote address at the AIB Oceania uh, Oceania gathering last week, and uh, what I spoke about there was context matters, and and I think in IB we have we have been talking about context for a long time. In fact, um, some and including some of the founding fathers of the field have argued that that ultimately what international business is about is context and understanding context. But I think, the, I think we've gotten away from that understanding and we've tended to, uh, to think in terms of context as being something that qualitative researchers study. You know, they're those qualitative people who go in and do ethnographic studies, you know, and archival research and, they do they do contextual research, but uh, <clears throat> really what what we all do is is contextual research. Except we don't always acknowledge it, and because we don't acknowledge it, I think we don't do it as well as we should. And I'll, I'll give you a quick example of that. Um, as reviewing editor at Jibs currently, I see a lot of manuscripts that come in that talk about emerging markets. We're looking at entrepreneurship in emerging markets. Or we're looking at uh, multinational firms that uh, you know that originate in emerging markets, and I'm trying to understand what emerging markets are. When I look at the definitions of emerging markets, the ones used by like the World Bank, for example, they have specific definitions that are, I would say, primarily financial, some sociological indices. But you wind up with a list of countries and it's it's 20 or 21 because of the methodology they employ that include China, <clears throat> Israel, Thailand. I'm trying to figure out what makes those three so similar um, that we would we would put them in a category called emerging markets. And the other question I have is that the notion of emerging markets appeared over 20 years ago. Uh, at what point do we stop talking about countries as emerging market countries? I, China has the second largest economy in the world. It, you know, hasn't it stopped emerging? Isn't there, you know, isn't, isn't there a better way, way to understand the context of business in China or Chinese businesses interactions in a, in a global economy other than with the label of emerging. Um, that I don't find that helpful. 
And I, th I think it actually clouds the problem. India, I'm here in India, and by different measures, India is either the seventh largest economy or the fourth largest economy in the world. Now, that's not to say it's a fully developed economy, you know, that it's on a par in terms of level of development with the OECD countries. But I don't think emerging is a very helpful term. And I don't think a category called emerging is helpful. So if we're going to talk about context, then we need, I think we need to be much more specific and much more sophisticated. Otherwise, we're really not explaining anything. Um, and I, and that's a, that's a big fear that I have uh, with, with regard to where we're at in IB. If, if any discipline, <laughs> excuse me, if any discipline should be sensitive to and sophisticated about talk, you know, in talking about context, it ought to be international business. Um, you know, that, that should be our bread and butter. Hmm. We should be able to, you know, preach loudly to other <clears throat> disciplines. This is how you look at context. Um, at that same Oceania gathering, um, Bo Nielsen did a great workshop on, on multi-level uh, theorizing and, and analysis. And I, that, again, I think of that as part of how do we better understand the context that um, the things that happen at the organizational level are influenced by individual level phenomena and actors, and also industry level or country level actors. And yet most of the models we work with in, in international business well, let's say most of the models, let's say quite a lot of the research that we see in international business doesn't really address those, those different levels, which again are part of the context that we need to understand what's going on. Mm -hmm. True. Now I'm going to jump ahead and then uh, come back to a couple more uh, functional questions. Uh, you started with the forefathers of the field and then the pro progress uh, moving away from contextualization. And uh, well, why is that? Well, what, what is this uh, evolution uh, or the shift in the culture, IB culture? Uh, what do you attribute it to and where are we headed to? Well, let me... <clears throat> let me... Let me zero in and focus on on one area, which I which I think can help explain the broader context, but most of my work um, around around leadership and you know and and uh, interpersonal intercultural interactions is really focused in in what I'll call the cultural context, and the driving influence there has been Hofstede and you know and culture's consequences from 1980 forward to at least through i would say 2010 that that approach those set of uh, those those sets of values and really that way of thinking about culture really dominated um all of the research is going on and in many respects um I, I can and I can remember when Hofstede came out. I was in Japan at the time, working in a research center, and um, boy, the impact that that book had was extraordinary. Immediately, people started talking about things differently, looking at things differently, 
I, I would say, unfortunately, though, I think it set a lot of research on a particular trajectory that was um, that was confined to looking at culture and only the way that that Hofstede looks at it. Um, <clears throat> business people who who talk about and study culture drive anthropologists up the wall because in anthropology there are myriad different approaches to defining what culture is and how to think about it. You know, is it, is it a communication system? Is it a control system? There, there are lots of different approaches, you know, and, and how should we understand it? And so the notion that, oh, we could quickly understand a culture by identifying five or six values. And, and there you don't need Hofstede. You can take Trompenars and Hamden Turner. You can take uh, Shalom Schwartz's work. And this is not a criticism of their work, but it represents just a single strain I think more broadly, um, a, a similar phenomena happened where we kind of locked into some particular ways of thinking about international business and, and the way to study it. And, um, and, and we kind of lock into that and we stay, we stay that way. I think more recently, uh, a number of things have happened. One, the environment has gotten sig significantly more complex. And this is not just, we didn't notice how complex it was before. No, it's gotten more complex. Um, the, the level of interdependence among economies. Uh, you know, if you look at, if you look modern supply chain operations um, for, for major corporations, they are, they are, orders of magnitude more complex than they were 30 years ago. Um, and so you've, you've got that tight, I would say tightly linked interdependence. And then the variety you find, the variety in markets, the varieties in business models. We have new business models that didn't exist before. Um, and then the, the, the pace of change is so dramatic and difficult to forecast. So when you, when you throw those things together, the world's gotten a lot more complex and we have had to struggle to make sense of that. And some of that is, I think, actually pushed us to go back to, let's pay attention to the context. I, you know, if you think about it in a medical sense, um, we used to prescribe, you know, in, in the United States, we had pharmaceutical companies and they would come out with new medications and, you know, and, and everybody would take, you know, those who were affected would would take the medications. And then if you've been paying attention, you realize that um, new medicines come forward. And not only do they, you know, are they for, to treat a particular uh, particular um, not symptom, but but uh, ailment, a disease, they come with a lengthy list, you know, sometimes three or four pages long of all of the potential side effects. You know, it, mm -hmm. you may experience this, you may experience that. And what's going on there? Well, what's going on is we have a more sophisticated understanding of the human body. And we recognize through our research on, on DNA that generalized ways of thinking about how to treat people are problematic. And in the same way, generalized ways of thinking about organizations, what they do. So we've had to become more sophisticated in how we think about things. And that's, I would say, is reflected in the sorts of methodologies you see now. 
um, there's been an explosion in both qualitative and quantitative methodologies, and we've become much more sensitive. In IB, you know, one of the ongoing, I, um, you know, endogeneity has always been an issue in international business. <clears throat> we now have tools that allow us to, uh, to, you know, to understand and to examine, you know, potential endogeneity issues in a way that we didn't before. But that uh, that increases the complexity of our research. If we have to, you know, if if we're having to attend to all of those things, it's reflected in jibs moving away from, you know, significant level p-values reporting, you know, 0 0.05, 0 0.10, you know, 0.01 and the like. Now we require a jibs that you you just report actual p-values. Um, and why is that? Because the p-values could be deceptive. And what's, what's more important is actually understanding the actual effect size, um, which you can understand better if, you, if we can look at the actual p-values and not be fooled into thinking, okay, that's a one asterisk or a two asterisk you know, effect, um, because there are lots of things that can generate that one or two asterisk effect that may not actually tell us much about what the what the nature of the relationship is between those variables thank you thank you this was very good uh let's talk about some uh, advice portion <clears throat> of the interview uh what was the best advice you received along the way <clears throat> for a successful career i <clears throat> There are a couple of pieces advice pieces of advice that stand out. When I was just accepted into a doctoral program, I um, <clears throat> I had an opportunity to have a conversation with someone who had just exited a doctoral program. He was a, he was in finance, and um, and halfway across the country. But he he told me he said it may be tempting to treat a doctoral program like school. It's not, it's a job, it's full-time. If you will treat it like a job, if you will, you know, and I, and I asked him, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, put in at least 40 hours a week, you'll be fine. If you, if you just think, well, I have a class scheduled at this time, or I need to prepare for that exam, he said, you're, you're never going to be where you need to be, but if you'll treat it like a job, and um, I think my my wife will tell you, I, I I've been treating it like a job ever since. Uh, I I usually get my forty hours of you know of work in, frequently much more. So for for early people, you know, early career, doctoral students, and like I would say, this is a job the sooner you start approaching it as a job, as opposed to, you know, I'll, it'll be a job once I graduate. And mm -hmm. With regard to, um, you know, kind of once, once you're in the profession, um, there's, there's, there's numerous pieces of advice, but the one that has stuck with me um, wasn't given as a form of advice. It was given as a form of admonition. 
Um, <clears throat> at one point, I think I'd been out four or five years. I was still an assistant professor. I was at NYU. And uh, <clears throat> I talked to a senior scholar. I visited up at Columbia for, for a year at, at that time. And up at Columbia, I had a conversation with Hugh Patrick. And uh, wonderful economist and uh, runs the Japan Center up there. And he said something to me. He, uh, we were talking about research, and of course, my, my research is not economics. But he was he was looking at it from a career perspective, <clears throat> and he said, "You need to cult cultivate the craft of scholarship." <clears throat> well, I thought I was working in a, to publish papers and to teach classes and the like, and and <clears throat> I actually felt uncomfortable when he suggested that I was a scholar, it was like, no, I, I'm not a scholar. That's somebody much further along in their career. Um, and that's when he said, you have to cultivate the craft of scholarship. You're, you are a scholar. I think the sooner, um, particularly early career researchers, the sooner they begin to view themselves as scholar, albeit, you know, distant from where they hope to be or where they aspire to be. But as soon as you kind of take on that mantle of scholarship, I think that changes how you approach your research. <clears throat> pressures to publish, you know, pressures to, to you know, to, to do research or to you know, teach classes don't necessarily become any easier, but I think the way you approach them changes. And I think it changes in a way. Um, we are we are in such an an unusual profession. When we talked about uh, pride and what were, what were, yeah. were you proud of, and then uh, you had a great answers, and then uh, here you're talking about uh, as a junior faculty, as a junior scholar whether you, you can consider yourself a scholar or not. There's the thing, the theme, underlying theme here. Um, Aristotle, he, he, gives, he gives the example of a person hiding a light under a bushel, right? Uh, there's much to think about that little uh, instance. It's not even an example. It's just an instance of some sort of an image that a person is hiding a light under a bushel. And that is not something uh, desirable in the field. Actually, if you think about it, it's not about modesty, it's not about humility. It's, it's something else here. It's uh, uh, yes, the junior faculty might not feel uh, they are accomplishing, but at one point, everyone needs to own their accomplishments. And uh, once you own them, it actually starts building, right? Uh, so uh, what's your advice to junior faculty? going forward for a successful career? Your advice. And I appreciate the, the perspective you've shared there. Um, I, because I think if you say you're a scholar, that doesn't mean you have the answers. It means you, I think it means you approach the, yeah. the work that you do with a certain measure of humility, but also a certain mantle of responsibility sure. that, that you have to manage this properly. You have to be careful what you say, 
but you also have to say it. Uh, if you don't say it, then you, you're not doing it. My advice to, to senior scholars would be to uh, would be to give a hand to those behind. Um, I've done a lot of hiking in my in my life, and uh, some places on the trail um, they're a lot easier to navigate if the person ahead of you on the trail kind of reaches back and you know gives you a handhold or uh, hmm. you know braces your backpack and, and allows you to get your position. Um, <clears throat> I think it's it's easy. Well, I don't want to say it's easy. I, I've observed people later in their careers kind of become absorbed in their careers. And yet there's there's so much <clears throat> that they have to share. Uh, one of the reasons I came to India and, and to the Goa Institute is I thought, okay, India is a country on the rise. There are lots of business schools. But I have some experience, I have some perspective that I think might help, you know, and this is not a boastful, hey, look at me or, you know, pay attention to me, but it's rather, I've seen some things and I, and I know some things, I have some ideas, I've been reasonably successful in publishing. So maybe there are some things I could help um, you know, junior scholars with. Maybe I can, you know, provide counsel. And I would say I, 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 I find that um, I find that particularly rewarding. Um, in some cases, more rewarding than you know than publishing another paper on you know myself. It's to see a young scholar kind of, you know realize that hey i can do this and i i understand and now i now i see you know how how this is done and uh, and you know i'm comfortable i or I'm, I'm confident that i can pursue it i think i think that it at least for me is tremendously rewarding and my advice to you know to other senior scholars would be to you know give a hand to those behind help them uh, help them up the path Thank you. Ellen, last question. Uh, what's the question I should have asked you about heavens? Uh, pardon me? The... What's the question I should have asked you about heavens? <clears throat> the, the question you should have asked, I, I, and, I, and I have been thinking about that, that very question. <clears throat> the question you should have asked is, what keeps me up at night? What do I worry about? Well, here you go. And now you want me to answer that question. Right? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, right now, my most of my attention is focused on on my editorial responsibility at Jibs, and as reviewing editor, I, along with my my co-editor, Sherrod Bugelstein. Um, <clears throat> make decisions about which manuscripts will go forward to uh, into the review process and which manuscripts will be desk rejected. And we desk reject about two thirds. Our, I think our numbers are running somewhere around 64%. And what keeps me up at night, what I worry most about are type one and type two errors. I, I worry sometimes when I, there are manuscripts that I rejected three months ago 
um, that uh, there are a couple that still kind of rattle around in my mind. And I wonder, did I do the right thing? You know, did I, did I throw, did I, did I reject a manuscript that had, you know, had tremendous potential and could have, could have made a significant contribution? But I also worry about the other type of error. Have I, have I forwarded a manuscript and taken up the valuable time of the area editor and the reviewers um, on a manuscript that really, you know, did not have potential? Um, the the manuscripts that come in and are are kind of really you know really well done and stand out those are easy, and the ones that come in and you know are are not well done or don't fit the journal those are easy, but there are always a handful that sit right kind of on the on the border, um, <clears throat> and those are the ones as I say I I some of those just kind of stay with me and I wonder at Jibs you can. Um, when we desk reject a, a manuscript, we usually include a note that uh, should the authors wish to respond to our criticisms and resubmit their welcome to. So I, I hold out hope that, uh, and on occasion they do, that authors who feel like we, you know, we may have missed something uh, will come back. So I, I don't lose too much sleep over that. Uh, and on the other side, I, I, I'm confident that area editors, if I've if I've sent something through that shouldn't go forward, they too can uh, can desk reject, and uh, so that makes that that makes my my uh, my sleep a bit less fitful than uh, than it would be without those uh, those safety mechanisms. But I I I love to read good papers. Um, they just announced last week the, you know, the decade award for the paper published in 2013. Um, I don't know about others. I, it was not my research, but I, I was excited for the authors. And, and I had thought that was a great paper when I read it, you know, mm -hmm. back then. Um, <clears throat> Thank you so much. Ellen, uh, for your time, for your thoughts. Uh, I enjoyed this interview. Uh, I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Thank you. You're welcome. <laughs>